Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Question Show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are across my channel. If a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I'll answer them here. Now, I am recording this show live on my YouTube channel. I do this every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to come and hang out and get your questions answered, maybe some follow-up questions, come and join the live show, 5 p.m. every Monday. All right, let's get into the questions. Ed. When will NASA standardize a rover design, aka when will they build the workhorse Jeep that they can deploy over and over? It seems creating a new model every time you want to deploy a rover is too wasteful of resources and increases time between rover launches. It seems pretty simple, right? Settle on a unique design and then just use that design over and over again. But the problem is, that the design for your rover has to depend on the terrain that it's going to be roving on. So if your rover is going to be roving on, say, the moon, then there are certain conditions, levels of gravity, amount of friction of the wheels, the size of the wheelbase, the temperature issues that it needs to be able to deal with. But if you're on Mars, then the temperatures aren't quite as extreme as they are on the moon, the gravity is a little stronger you've got issues with radiation. So those are some of the big issues that you're dealing with. And of course, things all bets are off if you're going to try to go to an asteroid where the gravity could be so low that your rover could fall off the asteroid if it if it drives too quickly. So then when you look at the science payloads, the whole point of the exploration of a place like Mars step by step by step is to send a different suite of scientific instruments every time you come back. And they use different amounts of power and have different electronic requirements, different position requirements, different instrumentation, different kinds of actuators and robot arms and all kinds of things. And so when you put all of that together, you end up with a rover that is quite different in terms of its requirements from the previous generation. And they happen fairly irregularly. Curiosity got to Mars in 2012, Perseverance in 2020. So that's an eight year difference, an eight year set of improvements in technology. And you can really see all the new incredible technology that went with Perseverance that weren't available with Curiosity. So you got this technology change as well. And then you've got differing launch platforms. You've got what was happening with the United Launch Alliance and Boeing and Lockheed Martin and such and Ariane space 10 years ago. And now you've got this faster cadence with what SpaceX doing with the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy and so on. And it would be great to have a, just a standard chassis that you send all the time. And in theory, you could then mass produce them, but you're never going to mass produce at the kinds of levels that would make sense. You're not going to build a thousand rovers with all the same kinds of capabilities. You're going to build one and then 10 years later, you can build another and so on. But that's today. You can imagine that there will be some future time where the launch costs have brought the cost of sending a spacecraft to another world down very cheap, which means that you can build less complicated spacecraft, cheaper spacecraft and not be so worried because your launch cost is half a billion dollars. You have to make sure that you build exactly the right rover. If your launch cost is a million dollars, say with Starship, then you can send something kind of dumber and cheaper and stupider and a lot of them. So I think we are going to shift over, but it's just a, it's like a scale thing. 
And we'll get to some point where the launch costs have come down, the amount of space based technology is so commoditized and so common that we will get to a point where we will see spacecraft mass produced and sent out, you're going to say there's gonna be an asteroid class explorer, and they'll send 100 of them out. And they'll all have their own asteroid, and they're gonna have roughly the same requirements. And there will be Mars rovers, and they'll send hundreds of them, and or Mars helicopters, they'll send hundreds of them. So, so just we're at the beating stages, but it will get there. Granville White, if there is more space beyond what we can see because the light has not reached us, does that mean the universe is older than 13.8 billion years of age? From what astronomers can tell, the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And that is because there are multiple lines of, of evidence, but the main one is that you can look at the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is essentially the first light that was let out into the universe. And you can measure how long ago that light was released. And that tells you how old the universe is. And so that means that the universe is that age 13.8 billion years old. But you got to sort of hold two versions of the universe in your mind. And it's not a thing that we do very regularly here on Earth. Like when you think about planet Earth, and you think about all the places you could go on the Earth, you're imagining them as they are today. And that it's sort of like real time across the entire planet, people are watching television shows, they are eating breakfast in one part of the world, they're eating dinner in a different part of the world, and so on and so forth. But imagine if you thought about the world, about how long it would take you to walk. And of course, in the ancient times, that's the way it was news traveled at the speed that people would walk. And so if some event say there was like the death of an emperor, it would take time for people farther and farther away to learn of the death of this emperor. If you live really close, you might learn in a couple of weeks. But if you were really far away, it might take months for you to find out that this event had happened. And that's the same thing that's happening with the universe. The farther we look, the further back in time that we're looking and the farthest that we can look is the earliest moment in time, which is shortly after the Big Bang. But if you could look at the entire universe in real time, and not in this time based, backwards looking thing, then you would see a universe that potentially goes on forever in all directions. And there are galaxies this way and galaxies that way and galaxy clusters, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And every part of the universe is existing 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang happened. But it's because light takes time to reach us that everything we see is older the farther that we look at it. Dave Redballs. Hey, can you talk about the best and worst entry level telescopes? Reasonable price, I'm out of work, thanks to COVID, for backyard astronomy. Thank you, good sir. So I would let's start with the worst. So the, the worst telescope is the one that you're not going to use. The worst telescope is the one that you're going to buy because you're really excited to look at space, you're going to buy it, you're going to set it up, you're going to try to use it, it's going to suck for whatever reason, maybe the tracking is too difficult to make it work, maybe the optics aren't very good. And you're going to end up being frustrated, it's going to collect dust, and you're not going to use it. Or maybe you're going to be able to make it work with the moon. But any other object is just not worth it, you're going to get tired of the moon and you're going to again, throw this thing in the closet, 
you're going to get rid of it and you're going to be disappointed. So that's the worst telescope. And the way you avoid the worst telescope is you get what I think is the best telescope. And there are like, there's two paths to go on. And the one path is that you go down the visual astronomy route, where you just want to look at things in the sky with your own eyeballs and go, wow, I'm looking at Saturn's rings right now, or I'm looking at the moons of Jupiter. The other way is to go the astrophotography route. And I'm not going to talk about the astrophotography route because it is a multi headed Hydra all on its own. But we did a great interview with Ian Lauer, who is an astrophotographer, and we talked for about 25 minutes in the weekly space hangout about what's the best way to get into astrophotography. So I'll link that here and you can check that out. So I'm just going to focus on visual astronomy. And you know, many people in the audience are gonna know what my answer is already. And that is the Dobsonian telescope, the light bucket. And what a Dobsonian is at its simplest is the biggest possible telescope for the cheapest amount of money on the simplest mount to use. And that mount is actually the part that's really important because with a Dobsonian telescope, if you see an object in the sky that you want to take a look at, there's like a really bright star up there. You just take your telescope, you look through the finder scope, you line up the object in the finder scope, you look through the eyepiece and you're looking at the thing. It's got very powerful optics that lets you see like Saturn, you can see the rings of Saturn, you can see the moons of Saturn, you can see the gaps in the rings of Saturn, Jupiter, you can see the storms, the great red spot, you can see the Galilean moons, you can see Uranus, Neptune, you can see how Venus goes through phases, you can see the moon in just incredible detail. And then if you have any kind of dark skies, you can see lots of other objects, you can see globular clusters, you can see galaxies, you can see emission nebula, you can see planetary nebula, you can see open star clusters. So there's really a bottomless number of things that you can see. They're relatively cheap. You can build them yourself if you don't have a lot of money. Uh, they're simple to use. They are just dependable workhorses. And I highly recommend like if you can't afford a Dobsonian telescope and you know, for a smaller like a six inch Dobsonian, you're looking at about $300. And if you can't afford a smaller Dobsonian telescope, I would wait until you can or try to build one yourself and go with say a pair of binoculars until you can afford that level of, of a telescope. And that's the one that I really recommend. Peter Hobelsberger. With obvious signs of liquid water on Europa and Enceladus, why isn't there more of a push to explore? There's kind of a like a time lag from when astronomers make these incredible discoveries to when the engineers are able to build the spacecraft capable of actually exploring them. And so we've only really known about the geysers on Enceladus since the arrival of Cassini at Enceladus, well, at, at Saturn, but also Enceladus and the rest of the, the Saturn system. And Cassini arrived at Saturn in 2004. And then within a couple of years, it was imaging Enceladus and revealing these incredible geysers that are blasting water ice into space from the southern pole. So from that discovery, then you've got to decide what kind of action you're going to take. We had a hint that a similar situation was at Europa, but it was actually more that the discovery was made at Enceladus first, and then really mapped back to what could probably be at Europa. And once this discovery was made, the wheels started to turn to build some missions. And so in fact, there are two missions going to Europa in the next couple of decades to search out this exact thing. 
NASA has the Europa Clipper mission, which is going to be focusing its energy just on Europa and trying to image the surface of Europa in incredible detail, trying to find the source of these geysers if they exist on Europa. And then the European Space Agency has its JUICE mission, which is going to be visiting all of the icy moons. It's going to visit Ganymede, Callisto, Europa, but mostly Ganymede and try to see if there's a similar environment and situation there. And so it's just a time delay. Up until the last couple of decades, the belief was that the only great place to search for life in the solar system was Mars. And suddenly Cassini showed us that in fact, there are these icy moons that have water oceans underneath and this water can somehow reach the surface and be ejected out into space, which gives you a chance to actually observe it. And so here we are, we're dealing with the discovery and the lag and, and getting to that point where we're actually going to be looking at it. Of course, as I say this in 2021, there are no plans to send a mission to Enceladus yet. And I think that's a shame. I do think that there should have been a mission, a version of the Europa Clipper sent to Enceladus. But we have the Titan Dragonfly. So we have a helicopter, a nuclear powered helicopter going to Titan, which we think is one of the most interesting places across the solar system, you've got these bizarre hydrocarbon lakes, you've got clouds of material that look like some kind of early version of what the Earth looked like. And you've also got a liquid ocean underneath this thick layer of ice around the surface of Titan. So there's lots and lots of great reasons to go. So there's only so many priorities, only so much money for spacecraft. And NASA and the other space agencies have to pick their targets very carefully. Ted Krause, dark matter, we know it's there, but we can't see it or prove it's there. Could it be a new element that just hasn't been discovered yet? I get a version of this question, which is that, like, could there be elements which are which are heavier, which have more protons than the elements that have been discovered right now. Like if you look at the periodic table of elements, you go all the way up, I forget what the latest number it's in the 120s or whatever. And a lot of those elements are really short lived, you have to create them in a particle accelerator, you have them together for a moment, and then they fall apart and decay into other particles. And that's how in fact, physicists are able to detect they even existed is as they decay into other objects. And you would expect that in supernovae, which are the most powerful particle accelerators in the universe, vastly more powerful than anything humanity can build, are creating much heavier elements at their cores in this moment when they're creating all of the heavy elements, all of the gold and platinum and plutonium and things like that, as well as even heavier elements, stuff that we can't even imagine that would then fall apart instantaneously. And in fact, it's sort of, you know, I'm kind of tangenting here, I know that, but that is the evidence that there probably aren't stable elements farther up the periodic table of elements, because supernova would create them and we don't see them in the universe vastly larger than anything we could ever create. So is it possible that there are elements farther up the periodic table of, of elements that could explain dark matter? And I mean, anything is possible. I mean, we don't want to close our mind to every possibility. But you know, my assumption would be no, because matter baryonic matter, which is what any kind of element would have to be, would fall under the same sorts of laws of physics that regular matter does. And the thing with dark matter is that it doesn't interact in any way, shape or form with regular matter, except for gravity, we don't see any 
radiation coming from. We don't see any light. We don't see any magnetism. We don't see it impacting each other. We don't see it bouncing into regular matter. It just doesn't interact in any way. And so if element 500 is the same as gold, except it has 500 protons as opposed to gold, then you would still expect it to give off some kind of radiation, you would expect it to interact with matter or regular matter in some way interact with itself. And these are the things that dark matter just doesn't do. And so whatever dark matter is, and of course, we have no idea, astronomers have no idea, it has to be something that isn't matter. It's something else. And what that something is, is we still don't know. XML 7SX. What is the best way to go through the 10 kilometers or so thick ice on Europa? Can it be done without a nuclear reactor? Oh, you just at the very end there, you took it away from me. Uh, no, there's no way to do it without a nuclear reactor. You pretty much need to have some kind of nuclear reactor on board to be able to do it. To get through 10 kilometers of ice, you need a way to melt yourself down through that ice. And the part that you're going to find kind of amazing is that this technology has actually already been tested out here on Earth. Scientists are using a kind of probe like this in Greenland. They've been actually able to test out. They take a kind of looks like a missile, like a dart and the nose of it is heated up. In this case, they are using electricity to be able to run it's connected by a wire, and they're able to have it go down through the ice at a pretty fast speed. Now it would be even better if you had the heat given off by a nuclear reactor on board, say like a nuclear RTG, the same kind of thing you've got on curiosity, perseverance, this thing is off a ton of heat and electricity. And so you would have this probe shaped kind of like a warhead or like a missile, it would sit on top of the surface of Europa heating itself up, it would tilt itself forward because it would be like heavier in the front. And then it would just start to sink its way down through the ice on Europa, spooling a line behind it like a thin wire for communication with the surface. And then the water behind it would freeze back over and freeze this wire into place as the probe continued its way down. And depending on the size of the probe that you use, if you have a very long, thin probe, you can reach the water in like down 10 kilometers within like a year, even less. But if you've got a larger probe, you've got a bigger science payload, then you're going to take a little bit longer, maybe two years, three years, depending on the cross section of the probe as you're sending it down through the ice on Europa. That's the best idea that's been thought of so far. And what I find kind of amazing is just how many places this technology has already been tested out here on Earth. And it all seems really feasible. Like there's no reason why we shouldn't be in the process of developing a probe for this. So maybe that'll come after the Europa Clipper is we'll get these really nice maps, these nice scans of the surface of Europa. And then the next will come the mission to try to get down into the ice because that's where the life is going to be is down under that ice. More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons, Terrace Branscombe, Brian Shoemaker, Dusty Reichwin, Ed Williams, Bill Nash, Charles Beller, and the rest of our 799 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. Bobby Reynolds, do you think that super voids like the booties void can grow from the expansion of the universe? Yeah, that's how voids grow. So if you look at the large scale structure of the universe, this 
the scale of the universe at the most zoomed out view, you see these enormous walls of galaxies, galaxy clusters, each one containing hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of galaxies, these structures can be billions of light years long. And what's happening is that the expansion of the universe is trying to pull all these galaxies away from each other, but their mutual gravity is pulling them back together. And so what you get as the universe is getting less dense over time, as these galaxies are pulling themselves into more cohesive structures is gaps are opening up in between these galaxies. And that's what the voids are. They're nothing special, they're nothing magic, they're nothing creepy or whatever. It's literally just the place where you've got two groups of galaxies are pulling away from each other pulling towards to create these larger agglomerations of galaxies. And the gap in between is the void, the place of less density. So you have the places with more density where the galaxies are all mutually pulling themselves together, and the places with less density, which are the super voids in between. And yeah, as the universe continues to expand, as the universe becomes less dense over time, then we will have concentrations of galaxies in some places, and then vast gulfs in between where there's nothing, and then more concentrations of galaxies and the super voids will just get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Tejas Dagha. What is the current technology which is being developed that you think will be one of the most useful technology in the future for intergalactic travel? Now I'm gonna say that that you said interstellar travel as opposed to intergalactic travel because I mean, the closest galaxy Andromeda, like two and a half million light years away, there's no way in the near future, we're gonna be able to cross the gulf between galaxies. Now, theoretically, there's no reason why we couldn't as long as these galaxies are not moving faster than the speed of light away from us, you can imagine some future civilization being able to reach all of the galaxies in this incredible light cone of space around them. But we can't even reach the nearest star. So let's focus on interstellar travel before we start with intergalactic travel. And in order to go between the stars, you need a propulsion system with a lot more thrust. You need like a chemical rocket. We talked about it in, in last week's question show that if you took a chemical rocket, you could feed it the entire universe's worth of propellant and you still wouldn't accelerate to a fraction of the speed of light. Same thing with a ion engine. It's only when you have a propulsion system where you're kicking out your propulsion at the speed of light or close to the speed of light that you stand a chance of reaching other stars in a reasonable amount of time. And so the one way is to shoot at a solar sail with a laser beam because then you can theoretically accelerate your spacecraft to the speed of light. And the other one is a photonic engine. So one where you have a laser beam on board your spacecraft and you fire that laser and it is kicking out photons at the speed of light and you're accelerating your spacecraft. Both have their upsides, both have their downsides. With the photonic system, you need to have electricity to run your laser and you may require a universe's worth of, of energy. Um, but I would say right now, the most feasible technology that we have is firing a powerful laser at a solar sail to accelerate it to a significant fraction of the speed of light. Edward Casimir, can we put a giant solenoid on Phobos and protect Mars from solar radiation? I'm glad you asked this question. It's very timely. Um, now, of course, you know, Mars has lots of things going for it. It has dirt. It has a day night cycle that's similar to the Earth. It has gravity. It's not great. 
It's 35% of what we have on earth, but maybe we can make that work. But the one issue that we're never going to be able to deal with is the fact that Mars has no magnetosphere, no global magnetosphere, which means that the radiation is going to be pelting you from space. It's going to be increasing the risk of people getting cancer. Even if we terraformed Mars, made it a beautiful green planet with atmosphere, it would still have no significant radiation protection. And so it would be a very dangerous place to spend a lot of time out there. And so the idea is how can we give Mars an artificial magnetosphere? And there's been a few ideas that have been proposed. You do it at a local level by essentially building a solenoid into Mars and then building your colony inside this solenoid is one idea that I've seen. You can block the solar wind coming from the sun, you can put a very large I guess magnetic shield out at the Mars Sun L1 Lagrange point to block the solar wind, which will prevent some of the radiated particles getting to the surface of Mars. But the cosmic rays, which are the really the deadly one, you can't stop that because they're coming from all directions. But there's an idea that was proposed just a couple of weeks ago from a bunch of people, including uh, Jim Green, who is the chief scientist at NASA. And this is to you're kind of there to use Phobos as a base to help build a magnetosphere that will protect the Mars. But their idea is to release particles an ionized ring around Mars and then run a, like electricity through it to try and ionize it and form a protection. And according to their math, this should be a way to provide at least a partial magnetosphere for people living on the surface of Mars. We covered this on universe today. And so if you want, you can definitely check out that article. It's like a bonkers plan to give Mars a magnetosphere. It's a it's a crazy idea. But you know, some pretty significant people behind it. So I like it. Jimmy Carlson, how much cheaper would a second James Webb cost to make compared to the first? I don't know, uh, you would definitely have some savings because there was a lot of technical risk that was taken on as people were trying to figure out what's the best way to make the actuators work, what's the best way to make the various components work, the science instruments, the sun shield, like there was stuff going into James Webb that I'm sure if the engineers knew how complicated these problems were going to be, they wouldn't have added this to the project. But now they've essentially figured out how to make these things, how to design and develop for these various science instruments, how to make the actuators unfold the sun shield and the main mirror and so on. And so they could follow in the footsteps, all the technical documents that they did before, but it would still be very expensive. It would be billions of dollars to rebuild the telescope. Maybe instead of $10 billion, maybe it would be $5 billion, maybe $3 billion. I still don't think if they had to, they would be willing to build another James Webb. That ship has sailed. So if James Webb fails, they will just move on to the next priority. And there are already other great big space telescopes in the works, many of which have learned lessons from James Webb. And so even though the telescope would be gone, the lessons learned would still be there and will be incorporated into future observatories as, as we move forward. But it won't fail. It's going to be fine. Jolly Blonde Giant. Hey, Fraser, if we built a really long magnetic launcher, like from the Pacific Ocean up the slope of the Andes, could we get the speed benefits of spin launch without the G forces? Right. So we talked about spin launch in a previous episode and how the rocket experiences like 10,000 G's before being hurled off 
into space. And obviously, that would liquefy anything living. Amazingly, there are spacecraft and components that can handle those kinds of forces. But you me, we would just turn into goo. So you need a slower acceleration. And the only way you get a slower acceleration is a longer launch ramp. And something that you're describing where you start off at ocean level, and then climb higher and higher up this ramp. What I'd heard is that you would need a, a launch ramp that was something like 30 kilometers high, and then you would have this big, long part where you're flat, and you're accelerating up, and then you're going up this curve. And you could definitely go up a mountain like maybe Mount Kilimanjaro or something like that, where you've got this long, slow curve and the forces you're going to feel 2g 3g as you go up this curve, but you can still handle it. And then you'll be thrown off the top. And then maybe a laser will shoot at the back of your spacecraft and accelerate you to orbit. That would be a megastructure project. And I think before the advent of two stage reusable rockets like Starship, those kinds of ideas were the only ways that you could get launch costs down by orders of magnitude from existing chemical rockets. But when you look at something that you don't have to destroy any part of your rocket, both parts can fly to space, return to Earth, be reused, refueled and sent again, then you don't need to get so mega projecty. You don't need space elevators, you don't need 30 kilometer tall launch loops, you don't need all of these really extreme ideas, because you've got a really inexpensive way to get things to space. And I talk about this quite a bit that I think we're in a temporary time when we need to launch a lot of mass into space. But there will come a time when we have enough space based manufacturing going on, that the need to launch a lot of cargo to space will go away. And so we're just in this weird, uncomfortable time where we really want to figure out ways to launch more mass to space. But this is temporary. And eventually, we will have just this incredible space infrastructure. And really, it'll just be sending people and fancy electronics to space. Gordon Cooper, what is the economic cost of contaminating Mars? That is such a good question. That's like a deadly question. Like what is the economic cost of contaminating places on Earth with invasive species? It's enormous. Here on Vancouver Island, we have problems with rats, with scotch broom, with various aquatic plants, Japanese knotweed, and dealing with all of these things costs a lot of money. And you lose the ability to grow crops, you lose the biodiversity because you've got all of these various animals and plants and stuff trying to take over and outcompete the native species. But if you have a place like Mars, where life is struggling to survive at all, then if you bring in our cyanobacteria, as my example is sort of your perfect, your perfect life form, cyanobacteria can just handle anything and just keep going, send it to space a year in the vacuum doesn't care, bring it back to a nice warm place or to the conditions on Mars, and it will get going and growing. And so you can imagine our Earth based life, which has had many, many, many more cycles of evolution would outcompete the native creatures on Mars. And so you would find this cool aquifer and you dig into it. And what do you know, it's filled with cyanobacteria and you open up a interesting rock that's got some water beside it. And what do you know, there's cyanobacteria because we've infected it. But what is the cost? The cost is the loss of the incredible science 
exploration and discovery that can be made, that if life formed independently on Mars, and every time we try to find those places where it did, we've already infected with our cyanobacteria, then that scientific knowledge is gone forever. And that would be a tragedy, because it would be one of the most important questions that humanity has asked, are we alone in the universe? Does life form on other places? And we've got this wave of cyanobacteria colonizing places in front of us because we've sent it there. But like, what is the cost? I mean, it's not like it's an economic cost. It's like a cost for science, it's a cost for knowledge, it's a cost for for the indigenous life forms on that planet. And as we've demonstrated in the past, we don't place a lot of value on it in the moment. And yet we wish we had, you know, like, do I wish that scotch broom had never been planted on Vancouver Island? Yeah, sure wish so. And do I wish that rats had never been released on Vancouver Island? Yeah, I sure wish that. And so I think that we should be overly cautious, we should take more time to study and analyze and try to figure out the ways to explore without contaminating the local environment to answer the question once and for all, if there is any life on Mars. And if there is no life on Mars, then it's just a rock. It's a fancy rock. It's a pretty rock, but it's a fancy rock. And we don't have to be that careful. But if there is life on Mars, and it either evolved completely separately, or is connected to us through some distant relative, that's a really important side of the question. And we need to tread very carefully. So the way to manage your risk is to is to be extra careful in the beginning, until you feel quite comfortable that there is no life there. Sahin Yasar, what would be Jeff Bezos's business aim if Elon Musk colonized Mars before Jeff? I don't think either Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk really have a business case for colonizing space. There really is no business case, they make terrible business sense. If you want to go and spend the hundreds of billions, trillions, quadrillions of dollars it's going to take to send human beings to Mars, you're not going to make money from doing it. If you're going to spend that money to build infrastructure in space, O'Neill cylinders to colonize the gulf between the planets, you're looking at hundreds of years of investments before you'll see some sort of self-sustaining, profitable economies. And so I don't think either one of them, either Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, are really thinking about what is the bottom line for this. They want to figure out how they can help fund it. I mean, if you sell people flights to Mars, then that is the way you pay for building up a civilization on Mars. If you charge people to fly to space, to go and buy property in your O'Neill cylinder, then that helps fund the development of that thing. But I don't think either one of them are planning to try and make money from this endeavor. They're making money here on Earth. Jeff through Amazon Musk through SpaceX and Tesla to fund this dream that they have. And I think that if anyone thinks that they have some super villain plan to make money, like you should just look at the economics of space exploration, they do not exist. There is no money to be made beyond Earth orbit for the unit for space for probably hundreds of years. John Minton. Hey, Fraser, how do neutron stars lives come to an end if they turn into black doors or explode? So neutron stars, of course, are the degenerate 
remnants left over when a star much larger than our sun goes supernova. And the star explodes, collapses down all this material crams into the small area and you're left with this neutron star remnant, this rapidly spinning object in the beginning, it's a pulsar, because it's spinning so rapidly in many cases, hundreds of times a minute, and releasing beams of, of energy. And then it slows down over time and eventually cools down to the background temperature of the universe. And then that's how it dies is it just gets cool and stops being exciting. Now, in theory, more material can fall onto the neutron star, it could collect material from a partner, or maybe just like over vast amounts of time, it will collect photons from the cosmic microwave background, it'll collect dust, it'll collect random shreds of planetoids and interstellar asteroids and things like that. And maybe it could collect enough mass that it would fall over some limit and become a black hole. But we haven't seen this happen yet, but you can imagine in the far future. King David would it be better to live on a water world than to live on Mars. I would choose. That's a tricky one. I think I would choose to live on Mars. Because you've got dirt. And you've got various elements that you would need to survive, you could extract carbon dioxide, you could extract iron and magnesium and all these heavier elements out of the soil, there's a lot of stuff to work with on Mars. But if you're on a water world, you've just got water, but water is like the best stuff. I mean, obviously, we can drink it, we can turn it into propellant, we can turn it into breathable air. So there's all these uses for water. And then in many cases, like if you're on Mars, it would make more sense to go and live at the poles of Mars where we know there's water ice, as opposed to try to live say near the equator where you're really far away from sources of water. And so if you went to a water world, you would need to bring heavier material, you need to bring all of your carbon, all of your metals, etc. But you'd have so much water. So yeah, I think in the end, I would go with Mars. But there's a lot of value to a, a water world. Gear of the hero and tackling space junk, I would think that the toughest challenge is capturing the smallest pieces Has anyone come up with any ideas on how to collect this kind of space junk. The problem with space junk is that every single piece is moving on its own trajectory at say 28,000 kilometers per hour. And so it's not like you've got little pieces of junk, and they're all just hovering out in space. And you can just grab one over here and grab one over there and put them together and grab a few more. Each one is a bullet. And you need to deal with each piece, even if it's a piece that's a centimeter across, you have to deal with it individually. And so the best idea, what I think is really going to be the only idea is, of course, with a laser, the Chinese have proposed this and other people have proposed this as well is that you build a giant orbital laser. And its job is to zap pieces of space junk. And it's not going to destroy them. But as the laser hits the piece of space junk, it essentially vaporizes a tiny chunk of the material, the metal, the plastic, whatever. And that causes a little thrust, a little propulsion. And so you got this piece of space junk and the laser zaps it, and it gets a little thrust. And so you can imagine it would be shooting these different pieces of junk, step, 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 as they're all flying past it, giving them all a little bit of a deceleration so that they will all eventually come into the Earth's atmosphere and burn up. If you want to build a mission that would collect a piece of space junk, you're going to have to build a spacecraft. Maybe it's going to cost you, say, $10 million. You're going to have to launch it on a Falcon 9 rocket. So you're looking at another, say, $90 million, say, $70 million. You'll get about $100 million to 
retrieve one piece of junk. And then your spacecraft is done. Like maybe you could have a little more propulsion on board. So it could go after another piece of junk that's on a similar kind of trajectory. But that's about it. And so you spend $100 million, you've collected one piece of junk. And now there's another say 100,000 pieces of junk to go. So no way of collecting things is going to work, you're going to need a way to deorbit them on mass and really a laser beam is the only way that I've heard proposed that is pretty feasible. Of course, putting a giant mega laser controlled by a country out in space could cause some concerns for various nations. So I'll, I'll let you know how that turns out. All right. Those were the questions this week. Thank you everyone who asked them. I have so much fun answering these questions. Of course, I record this show live every Monday at 5pm Pacific time on my YouTube channel. There's probably an, an, an announcement for the next one already up on my channel. So if you want to come and check it out and ask your questions live, we'd love to have you. All right, we'll see you next week. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights and links you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com slash newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. And did you know that all my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format so you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device. Go to universetoday.com slash audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks as always to Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.